This is Work Revolution, where we drop the boardroom speak and have real, candid conversations about what's going on in workplaces today and what needs to change in response to our changing world. Today, Professor Marie-Hélène Budworth is back to talk about whether diversity and inclusion training is making any difference whatsoever to the experiences of people of color and women at work. We also share some of our personal experiences and aha moments. Also, I don't know why I've repeated the phrase grocery store so many times, but I hope you enjoy the story nonetheless. Maria, welcome back. Oh, thank you so much, Deborah. It's great to be back. Yeah, I'm so glad you you agreed to a second round of conversation with me. <laughs> well, I had so much fun the first time. I'm uh, I'm happy <laughs> happy to be here. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I'm try. I do. I do want to make conversations fun, um, and it's the improviser in me that wants to have a good time while we're talking about really serious stuff. Um, so you've agreed to come back and tell us a little bit about some of the research you've done regarding race and workplaces. And uh, last time we were talking, we we at, at the end we we went a, we we got a little bit into um, some of the tragedies that happened over the summer, in particular, the murder of George Floyd, but acknowledging there are a number of others in the United States and in Canada. And you started to talk a little bit about what that meant to you and Mm -hmm. some of the conversations you started to have with some friends and, and colleagues who well, maybe it was a mix, but for sure, any, you know, other people of color, let's say. And so I just wanted to start with that. Like, just tell us a little bit about what that was like for you personally. Yeah, well, so I have always through, so in my teaching and in my research, I've always held a bit of a lens of diversity to the work that I do, right? So always interested in how identity um, alters our experiences and changes, um, uh, changes our pathways in, in, in the world that we're in. Um, so in the classroom, as an example, um, you know, I've always taught uh, learning and development to our master's students. And um, I, in teaching that, one of the things that I bring in is, is, um, is a case study on diversity training, right? So I, you know, I could choose any topic, but I often choose diversity training. I also look at leadership development through the lens of of gender and who gets selected for leadership pathways. So diversity has always been a theme in the work that I do. But I had this experience. um, Let's see, when was this? This would have been uh, uh, two years ago, fall, uh, this coming fall. So two two years, actually two years ago, the fall that just passed, uh, where I taught that diversity case about a week or actually, it was a uh, it was less than a week after I'd had a pretty uh, incredible experience personally, um, and the experience was that I was I was leaving I was leaving York I was leaving um, uh, I had left York and I was getting off the subway close to my home. My husband had come up to meet me at the subway because it was late in the evening, and as I as we were walking home, he got a call from our neighbor, and late I only learned later, but all that all that I neighbor our neighbor had said was your son is being arrested in front of your house. And my son at the time was a 15-year-old, 15-year-old boy. So he, t- Mike took off running. He got down to the, um, to our block and Ethan had, was taking out the garbage and had been handcuffed and was being searched by police. Mm-hmm. 
Oh my God. Um, yeah, we later learned that it was it was far more outrageous than that. He'd been asked to raise his hands. Um, he'd had to 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 hold his hands high in the air and be frisked before he was put over the hood of the car and searched. He was taking out the garbage. Right. And luckily, we had a great neighbor who was standing on his porch and didn't approach the police because I think that could have escalated things, but just started yeah, um, in a very loud voice, um, inter- like intervening and saying, I know that boy. He lives next door. His name is Ethan. I've called his father. He's on his way. So everything de-escalated fairly quickly, but it was incredibly frightening. Yeah, right? I and can't imagine. Yeah, Growing up in the city, uh, in the city of Toronto, as a um, as a mixed race woman, a girl, and then woman, uh, it was a very different experience than I think growing up um, in Toronto as a a boy uh, who's mixed race, who's also six feet tall, who wears hoodies, you know, all the things that teenagers do. Uh, mm. But um, you know, just uh, it, 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 he's having a different experience than the experience I had. Um, and it, it, on that night, it was really eye-opening for me. And since then, I've been even more aware. So I've always been aware, but I've been even more concerned about race and what race, how we respond to race today. And so not only, like, absolutely, I'm concerned about these, uh, about interactions with, with um, uh that are that are life and death such as uh, such as interactions with police or interactions in other ways but I'm also really concerned about what happens in the workplace um, how race uh, and identity um, can be barriers can keep people out of certain spaces within workplaces and certain positions Mm -hmm. Uh, so this is this is becoming um, it's always been a theme but it's becoming a primary part of the research that I do right well, thank goodness you're doing it because we need we need that, right? We need a lot of we need to be able to go into workplaces and have really candid conversations about one people's real experiences. I think it's so I think these personal stories are just so powerful and important to share. Because that I think that's what keeps a lot of people in the dark of not realizing the reality for for other people. I mean, you mentioned we live in Toronto. We live in a very diver- ethnically diverse city. Um, we live in ethnically diverse neighborhoods. Our children, you know, my my children go to a very diverse school, and that has given me, I think, now is what I'm what part of what part of the thing that 2020 has taught me, amongst many other things, is that maybe I've been a little bit naive about what that means. Because I just thought, oh, well, you know, we live in a diverse community and everybody's cool, right? Everybody gets it. Mm -hmm. And what what I think I'm starting to understand more and more is that that's not necessarily the case. And, you know, we do still live in a very diverse place. So the challenges in, in more rural areas, I think, can be even more pronounced, but it's not to say that it's not happening here in front yeah, of Yeah, I, I think yeah. I think that's uh that's one of the things that is happening in this moment is that there's a bit of an awakening, right? Yeah. I do think that we as especially in d- cities uh, such as Toronto that 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 does on the surface appear to be quite uh, quite integrated and diverse and like people are, you know, working together and everything seems 
um, seems to be running well. Um, I think that there that there's been this false sense of, of well, we live in this post-racial world, and you know, we we uh, we've we've gotten beyond those problems. I actually can remember uh, um, somebody actually saying to me when we when I was talking about my children when they were quite young, saying, "Isn't it wonderful that you you get to raise your your child in a in a city?" where race is not an issue. I'm like, I don't know what city you're living in, <laughs> but that's actually right. not the case, right? That's, right? that's the case if you're on the, if, if you're, um, that's the case if you're not racialized, right? That's the case yes. if you're not, if, you, if, if race isn't part of your everyday experience. Well, I think that's part uh, of what white privilege is, right? Is just not, is not yeah. realizing what other people's experience is and not realizing yeah. the frequency of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm going to tell a quick. I, that's uh, please. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was only going to say that you've you've actually defined white privilege really well, and I think that white privilege is a is a term that that some people take you know get really hostile about and really like their back goes up. But all that white privilege means is that you hold an identity that allows you to walk through spaces and not even think about your identity. That's right. right? Like I have privilege too. I'm I'm a. Uh, uh, you know, I, I come from a certain socioeconomic space. I'm a professor. I, um, you know, I occupy spaces that give me privilege. Uh, um, so I walk into rooms and I don't even think about the fact that I'm, uh, that I'm cisgender, that I'm heterosexual. I don't have to think about it because those aren't identities that are challenged. Uh, it's when you have an identity that, that you are reminded of, that you are aware that you, that you, that, that, that leads to different treatment or different outcomes. Mm -hmm. uh, that's when privilege comes in. And so you've done uh, that, like your, your definition of white privilege is, is spang on, right? Oh, anyway, good. I want to hear your story though. Yeah. So I had, this is a grocery store story. <laughs> so it's not to do with work, but then, then we're going to start to lean more into to specifics of work and hearing more about your research. But, but this was part of an awake, part of the awakening for me. So I'm in the grocery store one day and I had to line up to pay for groceries because of course, with the pandemic, we're lining up trying to keep our distance. And I was coming to the, the line in the, in the grocery store and two gentlemen, we sort of um, were trying to find the end of the line. And we had this moment of an inner, a brief, you know, interaction, very casual and lighthearted interaction uh, as we sort of found our place in line. So I'm in the grocery store line these two gentlemen are directly behind me and then the line continues to form. These two men happen to be Brown. Um, they are having a very casual conversation between the two of them. They're casually dressed. I, you know, to me, in my mind, it could be my husband and my brother-in-law or my husband and a friend. And it looked as though they were shopping for maybe a kid's party or something. They had not much in the cart, but like some, you know, junk food. And they had this little package of decorated cupcakes, like you would take to a child's mm. birthday party or something. And they were just talking amongst the, between the two of them. And one of the guys had the cupcakes in his hand and he was joking around and he said, Oh my God, are you hungry? I'm so hungry. I could just eat one of these right now. And they looked really enticing and delicious and full disclosure. I've done that before. I've like, you know, it's in a package. I'm going to pay for it, but you know, maybe I'll have one in line if I'm really hungry. So what happened though, as they're having this conversation, 
the woman behind the men line, a white woman, starts chastising them. So she pipes up and says, oh, you can't eat that. You got to pay for that. Yeah, I don't even understand. <laughs> and I, and, and I, so I'm thinking, oh, what, or what are you, what are you doing, lady? Like, these are two grown ass men. Like, who do you think you're talking to? Yeah. And so, and in that moment, I was like, I, I don't, I feel like I need to say something. I don't want to stand by for that. I, I don't want to sit there and just, and I, it made them uncomfortable. I could tell, but at the same time, I could tell they were quite demure about it. I don't think they want it. And so I jokingly said to them, and I felt a little bit, you know, empowered because we'd had this little moment in getting in line where we'd interacted a little bit. I said, oh, I would totally eat that. I've done that before, you know, and I, this, the woman behind, I could just tell she was getting more agitated. And then she said, well, that's like stealing, you know, a child taking grapes out of the produce section. It's stealing. Oh, I've done that. <laughs> Oops, a daisy. Um, and so, you know, I just, you know, and then I made some other comment. Like, I don't think that's stealing. You're obviously you're gonna. Well, they're paying for it. for it. Like they're, yeah. they're moments away. And, and again, like, have you not handed your kid a candy bar, or a, a granola bar out of, out of the package before you paid for it? Because exactly, you, of course I have. Get, yeah, of course yeah. I have. And here's the thing, though. And this is what was what was interesting for me is a hundred percent. I do not think she would have said a word if they were white. And um, anyway, so that that was a moment for me where I thought, oh, that's that that probably happens a lot to yeah, people of color. It's, it's infantilizing. It's yeah. it's demeaning. It's yeah, like it's 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 policing, right? Like it's it's all of these. If someone horrible- had said that to me, I would have said, mind your effing business and back up. Like I would have not tolerated that. Yeah. At all. Yeah. Anyway. For sure. So. Yeah. There are th- like, those are the types of things that happen, right? Those are the little, the little um, experiences that uh, some folks walk through right, life having and others don't. Don't. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about your research in workplaces. Yeah, so, so I've, I've, um, you know, I've done little theme like uh, bits and pieces here and there so I've done work that looks at um, uh, women and how they access um, jobs especially after a break Um, and I've looked at uh, um, uh, because I'm a psychologist often I'm looking at interventions that support uh, uh, people in overcoming barriers right so I've looked at uh, individual level interventions that support the overcoming of systemic barriers, which, you know, it, in, it has a place, but I have to say that I've moved away from that type of work because I recognize that um, while it's important that individuals have the, uh, have the, uh, the strength and the capacity to break barriers within the system, um, there's more important work to be done in understanding uh, the, the larger structures that intervene with with 
uh, or interfere with people's ability to be successful at work. So my most recent project is, and I'm, I'm, you know, I am mixed race. My father's French Canadian, my mother's Jamaican. It is a very like I'm. It's a. I'm very proud of both sides of my background, and uh, I, I'm very proud of being mixed race. It is an identity that that I hold uh, firmly, and I'm really interested in looking at the experiences of mixed race people in their careers. So this is a project that I've just started. Um, so and it's a bit different uh, because you know. So we often talk about diversity and racialized groups and minorities as, as, as if they are one cluster, mm-hmm. as if they are one unified thing. Uh, so as if a black woman has the same experience as a man of Chinese descent, like we talk about it as though it is one, it is a universal experience, um, but they are all unique experiences. And in my view, uh, mixed race people um, have not been studied to the same extent as some of the other uh, groups. And I think there's, there's an, uh, because it's a growing population, I think it's an interesting group to look at. And even within that, there's a need to look at the differences in the different types of, of, um, of, uh, of combinations of, of races, right? So like uh, black, white versus uh, Korean, white versus, you know, something else. I think that they are, they're all very different identities. So it's a, it's a complex question. It's a complex I, these are complex identities, um, but I'm really excited about embarking on this area of work, particularly mm-hmm. because, you know, growing up, I have to say, even growing up in Toronto, I felt like the only mixed race person around, right? And whenever I would see somebody else who was mixed race, I'd be like, oh, <laughs> 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 there, there's, there's somebody else, right? right? And, and and the experience I'm having now is as an adult, um, you know, it's like I I, uh, I often think you know it's hard to think about what I will look like as uh, an eighty year old woman because I don't have very many visuals of eighty year old mixed race women. Right. So I, I can I can I see my mother. I know what she looks like, but I don't. I won't look like that exactly. Um, mm-hmm. So even even at this career, so to reflect that on career, I look across our campus at York. There are, uh, like, across our campus, I can identify two other women who work there. Uh, a campus that has 60,000 people. Uh, there are two other people who work there. Um, so not including students, of course, in terms of, of my identification. I'm sure there are lots of students. There are two other women who work there who are mixed race, uh, black, white. And, and I, I know their names, and I know where they are. <laughs> right. right. So, yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm really interested in... Um, uh, in, in, in some of these complexities of identity and, um, uh, what that means for experience and this, you know, re- representation is a thing because there, there aren't very many, uh, individuals holding various identities. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm just starting to explore these questions of what is it like to traverse the world in this way? What does it mean for your career? What does it mean for who you are? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I, so you know, I feel like I'm talking a lot, but I'll just say one more thing, and that, like, in, I'll I'll give an example of of um, what I mean. So, you know, um, if you look at any writing around Black women, there's always a conversation about hair, right? Like yes. about, especially with regards to work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like having professional hair, or like the this this um, this this tension around knowing that your natural hair will be viewed in a certain way within the workplace. Well, as a mixed race woman with 
crazy hair, right? Like I've, I've always felt my hair while I'm very proud of it. And I, like, I, I, I love my hair, uh, in a professional setting, I feel it, 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 it's too playful and too silly. Right. So, uh, I don't, and I don't disguise it. I don't do anything about it, but I, 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 um, I carry that around a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Like I walk in going, are they going to take me seriously? Maybe I should have put my hair up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So I'm, I, I want to, I'm going to, th- those are the types of things I'm really interested in, in this moment. Mm-hmm. And also it reminds me of something that came up in our conversation before around identifying as, um, you know, sometimes that you've heard, I've heard language at, about, well, I identify as black or I identify as whatever. And so, and, and, and you and I talked a little bit about this language is important. Um, right. I yeah. think this is one of the, the areas that makes white people sometimes, and I don't claim to speak for all white people, that's for sure. But I think it's, an, it's fair to say that, it, that sometimes white people get a little nervous about what language is appropriate what what to say and what not to say and that and that maybe even prevents them from leaning into conversations a little bit more um and so i would imagine for someone with mixed race i have a a very close friend who's married a a white woman who's married to a black man so her she has two children and her daughter came to her and said i think i done i think i consider myself black and, and that was a conver- an interesting conversation that they then had in their household because this idea of what I, I identify as something. So tell me a little bit about, yeah. about your thoughts on that and, and language in general. Let's just talk a bit about that. Yeah. So I think in terms of identification, uh, th- that language is typically used with regards to gender, right? So uh, yeah. gender, is, so sex is a biological reality. Uh, genders and identify is is a socialized construct, right? It's something we've 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 created. Uh, it, in part, you know, we can de- there's so I shouldn't say that as blat- as 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 solidly as that. Uh, there are certainly aspects of gender that are created. That uh, you can debate how much is nature nurture, right? Uh, but in terms of but folks, often there are people who who uh, who are in the wrong gender, and so they identify as a different gender and move into a different gender. So that's what that language is really used for. But in terms of identification with regards to race, now that's a trickier issue, right? Because race is, is an identity that you hold based on, uh, based on your presence in a historical a space that is tied to a historical reality, right? So the, as in terms of, of, of race, you are born into a certain cultural identity, uh, and people will view you and see you and treat you according to the demographic uh, signals that you put out. So, I, I don't have to identify as mixed race. I am mixed race. Like if you like, this is and 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 you will tell me that every day in your interactions with me, or at least the world will. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't, I can't, I can't choose not to be mixed race. Mm-hmm. I walk into the world. I am mixed race. A person who is black walks into the world. The world will remind them every single day 
right? So the identification piece is is a trickier one with race because it it the the um, uh, it's it's not a choice. It is it is it is what it, it is. It's not not that gender is a choice, but it's not a uh, it's not it's not alterable. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a bit different. So in terms of language. Um, and I get, I understand this, the experience this little girl is having, she's kind of figuring out who she is, right? She's figuring, and I remember going through that myself, like figuring out uh, that, um, that uh, figuring out where you, the, the differences between you and your friends, figuring out, you know, uh, why, uh, why you have to wear ponytails to work, uh, to school rather, and everybody else can wear their hair out long. You know, you have to wear ponytails because your mother doesn't want to braid out the knots every night. Right, <laughs> or or uh, brush out the knot because yeah. your hair gets knotty. So, like, mm-hmm. you have an experience that's based on identity. That's race, right? Like, that is the, the, that's a distinction. I think that is important. So, be and I, I say that because I think you know, there's this. You think about that high profile incident um, where uh, Rachel Dolezal in the states uh, walk, she she walked through the world as a black woman. Um, but she had like she wasn't she wasn't raised as a black woman, so she didn't have the history of being treated as a black woman. So then to uh, appropriate the identity is is a is offensive, right? Like it's 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 this idea of well, you know, no, you don't you don't get to choose, <laughs> right? Like the 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 you are or you aren't. The, this you mm-hmm. you 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 grow up with a certain experience in the world and that's um that's who you are yeah yeah see the, yeah. the distinction there yes yeah but and so like that's so that's what uh, in terms of of language i think that's that's an important one i also think that um you know language is changing and language evolves and um i understand the frustration with you know what are the various labels what's the appropriate thing to call people Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mixed race is what I, what I would use to call myself now, but I rem- I can remember a time when people used the word half breed, you yeah. know, I, yeah, which is, you know, I even saying it out loud now makes me go, ugh, that's a gross word. Yeah. But, and then there was a time where there was the scientific, it was, it was a pseudo scientific world. Mulatto was put, pushed around for a oh, while. Oh yes. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the words matter because the yes. words are tied to things, mm-hmm. right? So um, as an example, um, we very rarely say African-Canadian, right? Like we, whereas in the States, there is a very strong, that's a very strong language. There's often used African-American, right. but we don't use African-Canadian because we understand that in Canada, uh, our the population of black people that live here come from all over the place. Right. They come from the Caribbean, as my mother, they come from, uh, they come from the United States. They come. They some of some do come from Africa, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that variance uh, uh, means that the the term African Canadian doesn't apply to everybody. That's right. Yeah. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, the appropriate the term that's used within the community is black. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and what about it, what it, about people of color? Is this a, is this a term that's um, I hear that. I hear that used a lot now. Yeah, people of color yeah, is perfectly fine, color. but it's it's broader. It's more broad. Yeah, more yeah. broad. Mm-hmm. It includes all yes. groups that yes. um, 
that are, well, another word is racialized, that are racialized, right? Mm-hmm, that are mm-hmm. racialized groups. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so what do you think needs to happen in workplaces to be more inclusive for people of color? Oh, that's a big question. Like there's lots of <laughs> diversity and in- inclusion training going on. Yeah. Um, I'm not so sure it's working. And to your point, I think sometimes is met with a little bit of resistance. Um, I think training is a, is probably an important component, but how, but creating real change. And and this is, this is a lot of, a lot of the work I'm doing right now. And my part of what really inspired me, pushed me to want to do this podcast and talk about revolutionizing the workplace is because I think a lot of change needs to happen and the, and change has been slow and it's been kind of painful in in some ways. And I think real change needs to occur because of course, workplaces are just one segment of our, of our greater society, you know, Mm -hmm. um, diversity and inclusion is a societal issue. It's not just a workplace issue. And to me, it's, it's, it's really got to come from the hearts and minds of individuals. And so training in workplaces can maybe help a little bit and address certain parts of the problem. And then policies and procedures that change, again, probably an important component, um, but somebody's got to enforce these things and somebody's got to make sure that they, they, they are, you know, rolled out in an appropriate way and a applied fairly. And so if individuals aren't truly buying in, then, and we've got women like I met in the grocery store in our workplaces, are we, are we, are we going to see change? And are we, I don't know. Where, what do you think about that? So I, a few things, and I'll, I'll start with the training piece um, and being a training researcher. So the the training piece, uh, you're right. Training uh, training does not change the experiences of of people of, of um, it doesn't it doesn't create diverse workplaces, right? Uh, especially so we the most popular training right now is the unconscious bias training, right? right? Um, and while knowledge of unconscious bias, I think, is really important and understanding what that is and and how it impacts our decision-making, I think is a great piece of awareness. Uh, training on bias doesn't reduce bias, right? So it, it, it might make you aware, but it doesn't give you the tools to actually shift your ability to make decisions about it. Right. So unconscious bias training is, it, it does something, but it doesn't actually change. Um, uh, it doesn't actually promote inclusion within workplaces. Um, and the second thing I would say is that, okay, so, so I would say that I would, and I would say, uh, I would say that training in isolation is meaningless. Um, training in isolation is like uh, throwing a pebble in a water. It, it, it might create a, a ripple, a bit of a conversation. People might talk about it for a day and then we go back to our regular way of being. Right. Uh, and then I would, the third thing I would say is that my, in my view, um, 
the diversity and inclusion is not, we're not ready for diversity and inclusion until we have addressed racism, Mm. right? I think they're two different things. I think that diversity and inclusion implies that uh, we are in a moment where we are accepting of all groups and we're here to celebrate and we're here to, you know, we're here to, to hold up and, and, uh, and, and, um, and be aware and bring in all various people of, of, of different genders and gender identifications and races and, and just be, you know, one great little uh, inclusive space. Uh, but at the same time, the, the, the real impetus for most organ, all organizations needs to be to, to, to disabuse ourselves of the racist practices, policies, and cultures that we have within organizations. Um, and until we do that, there's no, there's no room for diversity and inclusion, in that's, my view. That's interesting. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually. And are those things hard to identify, do you think? Racist policies, procedures, and these might be formal, informal, uh, because this is where systemic issues come in. And I think, and, I, and this is why I go back to hearts and minds, because I, I just think that if, if, for people who don't see it, it's hard to see if you don't see it. Right. Yeah, I don't, you know, in or, the thing that organizations have going for them, that the broader world, it, 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 it can be harder in the broader world is, you know, the, the big world is very fuzzy and there are lots of things happening out here, but organizations are closed structures to a large yeah. extent. So, you know, the first thing you can do is in terms of understanding whether there, there's racism here, identifying the spaces in which racism exists, is to look across your organization and start to collect some data. Yeah. Right? Like do some counts. Uh, do some, look at your recruitment channels and do some counts of the types of, of, um, of applicants you're getting. Look at your top management team or your senior leaders and do some counts. <laughs> like yeah. look at who, who's there. If mm-hmm. your senior leadership, as in most organizations, is a group of uh, white men, you have racist practices. Yeah. Right, like so you have, there's something, because it is not, for lack of talent, that women, black people, brown people, um, you know, uh, mixed race people, whoever, it is not for lack of talent that they are not at the upper echelons of our organizations. It, it's because there are other things in the way. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you don't find people of, of diverse backgrounds in those places, uh, then you need to, you, you, the, the next step is to look for the, the practices that are, the, the policies, the practices, the structures, the decisions that are holding them back or that are stopping them from reaching those places. Mm-hmm. And individuals make those decisions. Leadership teams make decisions. Boards make yeah. decisions. So that means that those people have to start looking at themselves, I think. They sure. need to start going, thinking about, and this is where unconscious bias maybe has a role to play, but we got to, we got to go a layer deeper than that. I think, you know, so yeah. like people are making those decisions and this is what I, this is sort of where I start to struggle. Like, is the answer really in more so 
individuals who are in positions of power and influence and in leadership roles, taking a look at themselves and really doing some soul searching, some uh, deep reflection, some, you know, candid conversations with people and really leaning into that rather than going to their HR department and saying, oh yeah, numbers are saying maybe we got a problem here. What's the HR department going to do about it? Yeah. Well, I think it's a bit of both, but I don't think you go to your HR department. I think senior leadership needs to figure out how to fix it. Um, Whether, you know, whether that's through fixing themselves or fixing their organization. Um, uh, Cause I don't, you know, with anything that's cultural, whether we're talking about diversity or any other cultural aspect of, of, of culture of an organization requires le- change from leadership. Um, but I think it's both uh, that need to happen. I think that there needs to be clear decisions taken um, within organizations that these are priorities, that, that, that diversity is a priority. Um, and there needs to be, then there, there also needs to be some reflections on the systems and structures. I think one alone won't do it. I think both have a hand. Yes. Um, in terms of, of, uh, of, of increasing diversity within organizations, uh, it's, it's not something that's going to happen naturally. You know, there's this, there's all these arguments around, you know, as we, uh, the, particularly these are arguments that are made for, for increasing representation among women in higher, um, in upper, in, in senior leadership, you know, this, this idea of a pipeline, We've created, we're creating a pipeline of talent um, and we've, we've started to see women move up within organizations. And as that happens, they'll start to break into these upper, upper, um, uh, upper spaces. No, I don't think so. I think it's, it won't happen. No. Uh, Organizations are, are built for a certain type of career. They're built for a certain type of, 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 of individual. They're built for, for. Uh, to support the careers of men. They're not built to support the careers of women. Exactly. And we know that men's and women's careers are different. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like, and that's what I mean by structure, right? Yep. So, yep. D- so while certainly decisions have to be taken at, at the upper levels, we, we also have to change how we run things mm-hmm. uh, because we have built these places for a very, na- very narrow demographic. Yes. And until we change that there's two things happening so until we change that um we won't see a, ch- a shift in in senior leadership secondly uh, there we there uh, these are self-perpetuating machines right like so think about think about what what um what endears you to people what 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 makes what connects you to people it's your similarities it's it's the things you have in common so often, you know, the people who get the most attention from top, from leaders, from top management are the peepers, people that are like them. And there's like, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Like that is human tendency, human nature. Right. Like we are, we, we like attracts like, mm-hmm. um, but there's a need, there's a, there's a need to make a decision to break outside of that and to be a little less comfortable Yes. with, with who we are mentoring, who we are sponsoring, who we are promoting. Yes. Right? And until yeah. And a lot of what they will have at that level um, of leadership, what they'll find in common tends to be things that are really grounded in privilege, aren't they? Because the things that you might have in common are 
um, certain aspects of your upbringing, maybe a private school education or extensive travel, um, golf, um, yeah. you know, or your kids both um, play, you know, triple A hockey or whatever the whatever the level of A's are, that's, that's a big deal. I don't even know, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, but often the things that, that people will find in common are, are things that to a lot of other people seem like really privileged things. And so it is self-perpetuating, yeah. right? Cause yeah. I, you know, even as a woman, I, you know, I didn't play hockey and I didn't, I don't play golf and I, I didn't, you know, I was, I had a sort of a bit of a scrappier upbringing, had to, you know, pay for my education myself and take on a bunch of debt. And, you know, and so, you know, sometimes it's harder for me. I've been in situations where I feel like I don't fit in or I don't relate as well to some of my male colleagues, for example, who maybe had more of that going on, you know? And so, so I'm using that to relate to what you're saying about this self-perpetuating aspect of things. And also I think this idea of workplace culture and fit, because we talk a lot about fit. I mean, I've spent most of my career helping people in their career fit in and look for organizational fit. And the reality is, is that in most organizations, this idea of fit is very, very narrow. It, it it fit in my view is a veiled uh, racist practice. It is just a it is just a uh, a way of trimming off those individuals who um, make you anxious or concerned or who you just you know I just don't there's something about them I don't know what but they don't belong here. Yeah. Right. Like, what does that sound like? That's yeah. fit. Yeah. Yeah. And fit is about really act a certain way, dress a certain way. I mean, just even all the language we use in organizations, you're going to have a role, right? You're going to have a script, which is your job description, and you're going to play this role and you're going to dress the part and you're going to, you know, act according to the script. And, you know, the reality is, and I think this is something that is very, very hard for people in positions of power, influence, leadership to really understand, especially when they're white men, obviously, is that a lot of people were not, were left out of the build of everything around us, right? Mm -hmm. So when you speak to that structure that exists, you know, women, people of of color, uh, you know, people different on the gender spectrum were not part of the build of anything around us in our economy, our, our, our institutions, our governments, places that we work in. So it was built by men. And I'm, I'm, this isn't just, and this is what I, I do worry about this defensiveness that you, you spoke to because people, you know, especially white folks get sometimes defensive about this stuff, but it doesn't mean that you are bad people. We just need to fix it now. Yeah, yeah. Like the we're we are being asked people who 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 uh, were not here. I love the the language you used earlier of the build. People were not here for the build, uh, 
don't fit in. Yeah. They don't fit. Right. So we need to, we need to, 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 I'm going to push this metaphor. We need to renovate. (laughs) We need to renovate. We need a revolution (laughs) and a renovation. (laughs) We need to renovate. Yeah. Uh, in order, in, in, in order to, um, uh, to, to respond to the fact that the world has changed. Yes. Right. That, that, uh, the economic structures that, that, uh, or the ways in which the economy worked before with one single breadwinner in a family no longer work. It's not the way things work now. And, uh, so, and, and people, um, are shifting borders, going, moving from one country to another. Economies are global. Our workplaces do not reflect that en- enormous change and that enormous shift. We need a huge shift and change. That's what this is all about for me. And you know what? Millennials have started pushing that. They have the numbers. They're pushing for change. And our kids are going to be more so like organizations need to start responding to this stuff because that push for change is only going to increase, I think. Yeah. So I hope so. You know, I think we say this each generation though, and I think each generation, the change is incremental. So I, I, um, as I said before, diversity is not going to happen just because, just because there are more numbers, just because there are more people, just because, there's, uh, um, you know, ju- we've already seen it's not happening because more racialized people are getting university degrees. It's not happening because more because, you know, those were hopeful numbers and they're not they're not leading to the change that we'd hoped they had. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that the message is that it has to like there has to be a broad um, ex- acceptance across organizations that we need to make room. We need to figure out how to change the spaces in which we work uh, so that organizations can represent the broader population. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, and I think we need to do it not because it makes good business sense. Cause I, you know, I have to say that's a pet peeve of mine, the business argument for diversity, uh, not because it makes good business sense, uh, not because um, it, it leads to, um, you know, uh, better outcomes or performance indicators. Uh, we need to do it because the default is unethical, right? The idea that 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 we need to make a case that women should be uh, in um, uh, in senior leadership, that we need to make a case that racialized people should sit on boards, like uh, that the, the implies that the default is correct, right? That the default white men being in these spaces is 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 an appropriate thing so you know that's it's it's not it just it makes me crazy it's like putting the um the oh you're putting the onus on the i don't know what 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 the the right word is to prove that they should have a spot that i belong yeah yeah when right and the default is well you know the status quo seems to be working fine and we're making lots of money and that makes me crazy so tell too. Me why. Yeah, and I tell get, me why you deserve a seat. Yeah. And then I, you know, because when I start to say things like, I think we need leaders who will do the right thing when no one's looking. I think we should just, how about just do the right thing? I get looked at like I'm crazy because that's really <laughs> just not appropriate business speak, Deborah. Like the reality of a business is not to do the right thing, I guess, you know, Um 
I'm not for it. I'm not down with that anymore. I think that it's time's up on that bullshit. Yeah. 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 I'm with you. Like, yeah. One more person shows me a study with performance indicators and uh, trying to rat like, no, I'm, I'm push that aside. Like we need to do it because uh, look at the world we live in. (laughs) Yeah. And also you're going to start getting called out, right? Social media, times are changing. So, you know, guess what? Your customers are diverse. Your employee group is diverse. Your community is diverse. And so you're going to start getting called out. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just, it's, it's, you're being a bad citizen. Like you're being a bad citizen. citizen. Yeah. Yeah. Do the right thing. Thank you. Be a part of the world you live in. Amazing. Thank you so much for doing this. You and I can talk about a lot of different things. Will you keep coming back and telling us about your research and what's so going on? So <laughs> you got me all riled up though, Deborah. I know. I always so I start like I, I this is what I whenever I do training some around things that I know I'm gonna get a little bit I mean I when I get excited, I get all blotchy. <laughs> this is why podcasting works really well for me. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like all uh, your medium. <laughs> yeah, like I, I, my my skin tone, I get really red and blotchy. And if I'm feeling anything, it's just written all over my face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I hear you. I get, I get, uh, I, I, I can turn a little, uh, a, a little. You can see it on my face as well when I get a little, a little um, excited. So yeah. uh, this is great. It's been, it's been good to get red and not, uh, not have the world see it. <laughs> That's right. You can't see what's going on here. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, thank you so much for doing this again. And and let's let's stay connected because I really want to hear more about the research you're doing and what's going on in workplaces and what advice you have for leaders and you know about how to how to make some changes. Well, you know, I don't have all the answers or I don't have any answers, but I'm, you know, I think there are some some really great questions being asked and and some really good conversations being had so i'm you know i'm happy to it's great to 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 come on and explore these ideas a little bit more absolutely and that's what it's all about we got to start with questions okay marie we're gonna talk soon take care thanks for listening if you're enjoying this podcast please subscribe rate and review the show you can send your questions feedback and topic ideas to deborah at workrevolution.ca That's Deborah spelled D-E-B-R-A. And please follow on Instagram at work underscore revolution. Until next time.